Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This is the fourth time we'll be featuring work by The Truth on Radio Drama Revival, and it'll also be the second time Jonathan's been interviewed here. If you'd like to hear the interview Jonathan did with Fred, hop into our archives and look for episode 380. Stories done by The Truth team have a very filmic quality. You'll hear Jonathan talk in our interview about the cinema and cinematic sound design that's influenced him. That filmic tone is very much on purpose. The tagline for the program is Movies for Your Ears. So let's get right down to it. While I thread the film into the projector, we're going to listen to a piece recorded on location in Kilfinnan County, Limerick, Ireland, during the Hearsay Festival last year. Give a listen and enjoy The The Man Man in the the Barn. My first memory is the cold. I was walking barefoot on soft, wet grass. I was wet. It was night. I kept walking until I found people. It's foolish to be out in the cold like this. You're welcome in my home. I wait for her to go, but she doesn't. She just waits. I don't know who you are, but I want to help you. I don't know my name, or how old I am, or where I'm from. I know you've been sleeping in my barn. My name is Grace. Grace. sure I can talk. Grace and her husband, Jimmy. I can hear them talking from outside. I have very good hearing. I'm very welcome. Grace. Gracie. It's hard for them to look at me. When I see myself in the mirror, I understand why. I'm going to touch your forehead. Is that all right? 
take her to town to the hospital. No hospital. What happened to you out there? Can't you talk? But you'll have to eat. Will you try some soup? Grace and Jimmy are trying very hard to be quiet. If I concentrate at night, I can hear their hearts beating. They can't sleep. They're afraid. How do you suppose he got all burned like that? Fire. If he wanted to harm us, he'd have done it already. I suppose so. I can hear all kinds of things. Like Jimmy's television. Even when it's off, I can hear it. The problem is with his router. I'm pretty sure I can fix it. Disputes are looming, but our workers looking for two get what you need together. Trouble sleeping. Very chill, isn't he? Now, one, three. What are you doing? Who got the television working again? Well, look at that. Days pass before they start to relax. In the meantime, I do what seems right. I do what I can to help. The guy's done it again. He's a regular magician. Aren't you going to thank him? Oh, yeah. Thank you, young fella. You must have been a mechanic or something before, no? Whatever happened. We should call him something. Let's think of a name. Adam. Adam? Does that work for you? People treat you differently when you have a name. They open up to you. Do you know what, Adam? humiliating to be dependent on other people. Don't tell Jimmy I told you this. But he's really glad that you're here. Gracie's an angel, but I can't say I've been as good to her as she deserves. It's good for him, you know, to have another man to talk to. He's one tough nut and he won't admit it. I was sick, you know. That's why I'm so useless and walk with this thing. We had a son once. That's his room you've been sleeping in, actually. I miss him terribly. It gets so lonely sometimes. People like talking about their feelings. They like it when you talk to them and tell them how you feel. They want to connect. Tonight, Gracie, you are the honoured guest of Chez Jimmy. Mm. Wait. The assistance of sous chef Adam. Nothing to be done. Just sit back, enjoy a drink, and let us do all the work this evening. Isn't this a nice surprise? Bon appetit, my love. Why, thank you, Jimmy. Adam, I know you don't like to eat much, but it's a special occasion, and we'd all like to break bread together. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Jimmy. What was that? Thank you. You can talk. People like to be thanked. It seems to have made them happy. <laughs> Why is that funny, Jimmy? Well, you don't get it. Forget it. Is there a fire? What? I don't know where that's coming from. Are you okay? Adam? It lasts all night. I'm finding it hard to think clearly. Something is wrong. The door. It's for me. Hello, can I help you? I'm sorry to bother you. I'm Elizabeth Coram. I work with Group. Do you know it? No, sorry, I don't. Can I have a word? What's this about? It's actually quite sensitive. Would you mind if I came in for a minute? Yes, please. Jimmy, we've got company. Can I offer you a cup of tea? No, I'm fine. It's no trouble, I'm making some myself. I'll have a cup then, thank you. How do you do? Fine. Do you take sugar or milk or both? Sugar would be nice. Well, I don't have any here. I'd have to run to town for it. We don't use That's much sugar. Right. The tea's fine. Can I talk to you for a minute? Okay. I wonder if the two of you have seen anything out of the ordinary recently. I'm looking for someone who I believe is in this area. I can't say that we have. You're sure? Nothing at all? Nope. Okay, well, the individual I'm looking for is in need of help. What kind of help? It's sensitive, I'm afraid. But if you had seen him, you'd be doing him and me a great favour if you could take me to him. Who did you say you're with again? An institution. Sorry, but we haven't seen anybody. Well, would you mind taking a look at a photograph, just in case? This is the individual I'm looking for. Does he look familiar? No. Right. I'm going to show you this. This is a photo of the men he killed. Three of them he tore apart. Smashed the other's skulls. Did I really hurt those people? So are you sure you haven't seen anything? Okay. Mind if I have a look around then? We certainly do mind if you look around. She wants to eliminate me. Why? You seem like nice, decent people. This man I'm looking for, he's not a man. It looks like a man, but it's not. It's a machine. A machine? A failed experiment. And a dangerous one at that. So can you please let me look around? You're not 
listening to me. I can't allow you to go tracing around here without a I need you folks to stand back. I'll call the guards. Excuse me. Jimmy, call the guards. Okay. It's in the barn. My first memory is the cold. I was walking barefoot on soft, wet grass. I was wet. It was night. How long ago was that? What happened before? I can't remember. I know you're in here. Give yourself over then. No one needs to get hurt. She's afraid. I'm here to help. She's not here to help me. Where is this? I found the beacon. It was in my head. I pulled it out. No. No! And I'm again thinking clearly. Shit! I watch her from far away. She looks worried. I could hurt this woman. I could tear her apart. But I won't. Grace and Jimmy wouldn't like that. Grace and Jimmy. My friends. I never get to say goodbye. Fine walking. You sure. Thank you. Okay, look after yourself, right? Thank you. And that was The Man in the Barn, recorded on location in Ireland. I don't want to say too much more about that because it's going to be the first thing you hear in our interview with Jonathan Mitchell, coming right after this break. I spoke to Jonathan Mitchell, the creator of The Truth, a few weeks ago. Our conversation went all over the place, from experimental music to the state of the medium to places to get brunch in Chelsea, but guest producer Eli McElveen molded us into shape. Take a listen. Jonathan, thank you so much. Welcome back to Radio Drama Revival. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So I'm thinking about playing The Man in the Barn before this interview. Uh-huh. So The Man in the Barn is a piece that you recorded on location in County Limerick in Ireland. That's right. Um, how, how often do you get to record on location in a space that isn't a car? Whenever the story calls for it, that's what I'll want to do. Like we did, like there's a story we did called Sylvia's Blood that I knew I wanted to 
and get tape of them walking around the woods and out in a field. And I wanted to get way far away from traffic. So we went to a farm about an hour and a half out of town. And um, that really made a difference, I think. I think also like going someplace, like making that, that extra effort to go someplace kind of, I guess it keeps the actors on their toes. It makes it feel mm-hmm. more like a special thing. Sure. Um, and so I think the performances really benefit from it. How did you make contact with Irish Public Radio? Because I know you were going to the Hearsay Festival. Right. Actually, the, uh, um, what happened was Jeremy McIntyre uh, runs the Hearsay Festival. Okay. And he connected me with RTE as something that might be a nice extension of the festival. I, I had given a talk to um, an organization called AirPi, which is an organization for independent radio producers in Ireland. And so I gave a I gave this talk, and um, Diarmid was there, and so I met him there. And I guess he was just a fan of the podcast, you know. And he was in New York, and we had lunch while he was here, and he said, hey, I got this. I think I can get you a commission from the RTE, uh, something that you'd be into. And so, so he made it happen. I mean, it was really him. He got the actors together. He got the farm. He got the commission. He got the money. <laughs> Where did you take him to lunch? <laughs> it was just a, yeah across the street. But yeah, he he was really really great. Yeah, and his festival hearsay. Um, I highly recommend everyone go to it. Um, it's it was just one of the most incredible, fun things I've I've done in audio. Um, it's it's in this really small town. I think it's, I think seven hundred people in the town. Oh my God! There's like one one restaurant with Wi-Fi, you know, and uh, at night everyone just sort of wanders from pub to pub, and you just find all the pub where everyone's at. Is hearsay just for fiction, or is it for all? Kinds no, of... it's for radio in general. It's for audio. I, I guess it's an audio arts festival. So cool. there were a lot of um, it's like sort of interdisciplinary in a lot of ways. It's like there's a lot of film sound people. Like a mm-hmm. lot of the talks I went to were um, sound design for film. Is there anything from the world of film sound design that you've picked up and like stolen and put into the truth? Probably. I think I was really influenced by Walter Murch, Apocalypse Now in particular, and uh, uh, The Conversation, and THX 1138, which are all films he worked on the sound for. And, um, oh, Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh. Oh right, because you've you've said that Sex Lies and Videotape was like a huge influence on you. Yeah, that was that was one of the biggest influences. I'd say on my life, that was one of the biggest influences on my life. Why is that? Um, it just it, it 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 sparked my obsession with film. It made it seem like that was like a doable thing to make a film. Uh, it was the first screenplay I ever read. Um, it, it was the first um, first like DVD extras I ever became obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think they were, weren't they Laserdisc actually? Yeah, Laserdisc, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you've said in other interviews that you felt when you began working on The Truth that you had a lot of, a lot to learn about fiction storytelling. Yeah. Uh, but before that, you worked as a documentarian for a decade and a half. What craft did you bring from nonfiction, from radio nonfiction to the practice of fiction? Um, I think that the biggest th- way that that informed what I do now is the way that I edit stories. I, I think doc, making documentaries, uh, the process is, is more along the lines of you, you go out and collect a lot of material and then you shape the story and the editing. And um, 
a lot of it is generating material and then you kind of are reacting to what you get. It's like a very reactive, the writing process is. When I started doing The Truth, I was working with improvisers a lot. I still am. But that was, it was a, sort of played a much bigger role in our process at the, in the beginning, I think, than it does now. Um, because I was, I, that was just something I feel, felt really comfortable with. I thought, and I've been taking improv classes, so I knew a lot of improvisers. And I, I'd, I'd seen a lot of people I knew I wanted to work with. And I thought if I got some really great improvisers in the studio, we could probably make some pretty cool stuff. Also, I, I've been working at Radiolab at that time, mm -hmm. and they use a lot of improvisatory techniques in their story writing, you know, where um, the hosts talk. They're, they're, they're usually improvising, and there's a lot of um, like generation of, of back and forth and, and iterative writing while, where you generate a lot of material, and then you fill it in. So that, that's kind of their thing is that Chad and Robert have the reporter come in and summarize their findings, right? Yeah. yeah. And then they kind of cut between that to create the frame. Right. But the way that they do that is they'll record the interview and then they'll record Chad and Robert. And then, I mean, they do, the process isn't as fluid as it generally, as it comes off in the final product. Sure. Um, it's, it's actually much less linear. It's like <laughs> you'll end up recording like phrases and inserting words to make things make sense. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's highly edited and it's really written in the editing. And that's always something that, I mean, that's been true of my work all along. Um, I just really feel comfortable editing sound and I like working directly with sound. That's my favorite part of the whole process is, is, is taking the raw tape and, and then trying to make a piece out of it, you know. Now, you came of age studying music at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana and at Mills College working with magnetic tape. Yeah. I'm a wee baby boy. I've only ever known um, digital audio workstations. What's it like to, what was it like to work with tape? Well, the thing I like about it is that you're making an object. Like, it's something that actually is a physical thing that exists that contains on it the sound, you know? There's something mm -hmm. about, like, objectifying sound in that way that I I really responded to. Um, like, uh, treating sound as a fixed media art form uh, it was really... What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, it's like a, it's a, like a sculpture. It's like a sculpture. Okay. And so, like, because you're making an object, I sort of saw it as a form of sculpture, you know? You're taking little bits of pieces of tape and and taping them together and creating a sequence of these sounds that only exist on the tape, you know? There's something very direct about the physicality of it that I, I found appealing. It's interesting to think about it in terms of sculpture because the way you're describing that sounds like an additive process and the way that I think of classical sculpture, and maybe this is the way that people traditionally made documentary radio, is that you, know, you have the block of marble and you see something inside of it to chip away. Right. Well, it depends on what kind of sculpture you're making. You could also add things, you know. <laughs> it doesn't have to be marble. It could be clay or junk that you find. Yeah. There's something also about the mechanical nature of tape machines and, um, like, making tape loops and, like, actually running the, the, the machine backwards, you know, and doing tape delay things where you're stringing tape between two or three different machines, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, like it's all about, like, the ingenuity of using the mechanical um, qualities of the instruments you're using, you know? And and then we are also, um, in addition to magnetic tape, we were 
working with analog synthesizers. These are like old modular synthesizers, like there was a Moog 900 and a Buchla 200. And um, the way that they were set up in the studio is very simple to just run audio through them. And so I really enjoyed using those as sound processors. Um, there were like filter banks that you could hook up to VCAs and sequencers and do all kinds of things that I would just never think to do today you know, with the plugins that I have. It was just a completely different instrument. And the sort of the limited quality of it made it more fun to like think up, like, how could you push that, you know? And and uh, and you sort of just go home and you think, what can I do in that studio? Like, what would sound real cool? It was just a different kind of thing when that's what I was working with. Well, it's, it's very interesting to me working in a, in a digital audio space, how everything still retains... Uh, by necessity, like the visual metaphors of the physical things that you actually used to do to tape. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. There's all these artifacts. You know, the thing about digital is it, it's it's sort of limiting to, to think of it also analogous to analog recording. It, that, that can make it easier, but it's also because it's a completely different medium, it's capable of doing so many things that are, once you start sort of defining it as like an analog thing it kind of cuts off a lot of options you know sure like when i was a an undergrad uh, i was taking computer music classes and this is in the days when you had to actually write code mm -hmm. like you had to know c in order to make computer music like one of our first assignments was to generate a sound file that produced a, a sine wave and then you generate a sound file that produces a more complex waveform that you specify what partials are there and what their relative amplitude is and then it generates this the sound file and so in order to do that you kind of have to know the math behind sound and you have to know also you have to know how a, a sound file is formatted you know and you have to all know all these things and then you start to think about it in a completely different way with a completely different set of parameters for for how you can um, manipulate it and i the computer piece i eventually made were using these fractal functions to it was basically granular synthesis using like a fractal function to uh, determine where in a um in a sound file i would take and how long it would be and i'm i'm not sure i understand what you mean by granular synthesis oh so granular synthesis is like taking little bits of a sound file and um it's like, it's like a sample based form of synthesis that is interested in in taking little tiny bits of the sound file so like maybe a wavelet or maybe a, a very like a just a few milliseconds oh, and, okay. and so uh, a very common application of it is like when you stretch audio or speed mm -hmm. it up that's like a form of granular synthesis but but it's it's actually capable of doing far more sophisticated things anyway th i did things that i would never think to do definitely not in an analog situation because it would be impossible but just like it, it, you know, your your conception of what you're doing and and what the parameters of it are completely interwoven with the media you're working in. So I listened to that episode of Song Exploder, which is about you making the Radiotopia sting. Uh huh. Uh, but that that sounds more like uh, pebble synthesis than granular. Yeah, synthesis. no, that's different. That's completely different. That's like uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's almost the opposite end. That's like mm -hmm. uh brute force composition <laughs> yeah sort of so um, so for for context what you did is you recorded uh an opera singer singing radiotopia radiotopia like in every yeah. possible pitch in her range and then chopped up the whole thing into syllable chunks yeah yeah that was mostly just so i could because i didn't want to have to bring her in more than once 
Yeah. Um, I just thought it was the most efficient way to go because I, I didn't want to commit to the melody I was using until after I actually heard her singing it. And, and, and so my solution was just to record her at every pitch. Well, I think that that says something really revealing about the style that you bring, like the editorial style that you bring to making stuff for the truth. Uh-huh. Um, and I was wondering, because both you and Jad Abumrad studied music, right? You studied at U of I, and he studied at, what, Oberlin College. Right. Um, and I was wondering if thinking musically as well as being a documentarian has affected the way that you produce audio. I, I, I'm just doing what comes naturally to me, and I'm just, like, solving problems the best way I can think of. And because I was exposed to all this experimental music when I was, you know, in college, in grad school. Um, that's why I started making audio drama in the first place. Like when I started making it, I wasn't thinking of it as audio drama. I was thinking mm-hmm. of it as an extension of the music I was making. So what are you, what are you into? What do you listen to? Um, what kind of music do you like? I should uh, say. Um, lately, gosh, <laughs> lately I've been like listening to a lot of nostalgic stuff. Like I think that, Music doesn't play the same role in my life as it used to anymore. I think it is really the honest answer. What contributes to that, do you think? I don't know. I, I listen to things all day long. You know, I, I, I'm always working with sound. And so I think when I'm not working, I just want it to be quiet. <laughs> and I assume you also don't want a distraction from the baby monitor. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I like to sing to my baby. I like to... Um, like dance around and sing it seems to calm her do you make uh, up songs or yeah do, do yeah i always make think, up okay. a little song on the spot you know just based on what what's going on you know <laughs> and, and and like certain songs after a while they sort of stick they come back okay you know uh like baby likes to dance <laughs> baby likes to dance 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 <laughs> that's my baby dancing song Sure, because um. <laughs> it, it seemed to me from from the reading that I did and listening to other interviews that you did that you had this like deep and abiding love of pop music. Yeah, where'd you get that from? That's interesting. Um, I think I think it was in the podcast digest interview you were talking about because your dad was a yeah um, music director for a church, right? Yeah, he's a choir director and organist. And I mean, uh, the presence of song and knots betrays an obvious and deep love of pop music mm-hmm. yeah i i think um i mean when i like when i was in school for example i think that um frank zappa was just as big of an influence on me as uh like steve reich okay like when i was in high school like the, the things that really i think stuck with me and when i go back and listen to them i can say oh yeah that's where i got that from are like uh pink floyd and uh the police rem replacements that kind of stuff do you find like are you still into frank zappa and captain beefheart and uh and steve reich well i'm looking forward to seeing this there's a new documentary um about frank zappa that's in theaters right now i'm kind of waiting for it to come on video i'm really interested in seeing that i guess i'm more interested in his biography these days but i like my favorite frank zappa albums are uh, apostrophe and overnight sensation and we're only in it for the money and Uncle Meat. I think I, I think when I was a kid, I listened to Frank Zappa songs sort of the same way that I listened to Weird Al Yankovic songs. Like I don't think I I got it. I think like I th- a novelty I song. You saw it as yeah. A I thought of him as a novelty songwriter. Right. 
So like the Muffin Man or Don't Don't You Eat That Yellow Snow. Right. His lyrics are kind of silly a lot of times, but um, he's got a very wide range of music. I mean, some of it's really difficult to listen to because it's so sophisticated. <laughs> but no, I, I love how he um, uses the recording studio. He's very inventive. Like when I was in college, I heard, I remember hearing We're Only In It For The Money for the first time. And I think that I came to an understanding about what I wanted to do and who I was. It was that album. It was hearing that album for the first time that really made it all kind of click into place for me, I think. Do you still want to make music? Uh, only for my podcast. I, I, I think the, the podcast is really what I wanted to do all along. Like, I, I, I didn't, I don't think, I didn't arrive here by accident, you know? Right. I arrived here because it's just what I, what came the most naturally to me and what I enjoyed the most. Yeah, it, it really feels like through the path I've managed to trace of your career, through all the different places that you've worked at, it really feels like the truth is the thing that you've been angling at this whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it feels to me, too. How did you arrive at the name The Truth for the show? Um, that was when I was working with uh, Hillary Frank. We were working on pitching this as a pilot for a radio series to American public media. And uh, Hillary uh, thought of that name. She uh, found it in a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. They said, um, fiction reveals truth that reality obscures. And uh, it, it has all kinds of applications to what we do. You know, there's truth in comedy. There's truth in theater. There's, um, was it Eisenstein who said film is the truth 24 times a second? So it has all these things. But um, we, we, were, we were positioning what we were doing in relation to the kind of reality-based like documentary programming that was on public radio how would we convince public radio program directors that this this should have a place on their air and i, I mean I, some of what what propelled you getting moon graffiti on prx is that how roman mars heard the piece in the first place or how did you initially make contact with the people that would eventually coalesce into radiotopia i've known roman probably since 2004 Four, we met at Third Coast. Oh, okay. Which is a an uh, audio documentary festival that's in Chicago every year, and um, that's where a lot of the people I know on radio that, that I, I know them through that festival was sort of like a hub of creative audio production. I guess you'd call it the public radio counterculture. You know, like like all the people who just wanted to shake things up and 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 do really interesting work. It was like a place for. Also, like young people, to if they were really interested in pushing the boundaries of documentary, they could go and meet like-minded people. So, so I knew I knew Roman through that, and I knew uh, like Julie Shapiro through that, and and uh, Julie Shapiro is now the executive producer at Radiotopia. Yeah, it was really nice that all comes full circle. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I gave presentations at the festival, and a lot of people knew who I was. I guess at that point. I don't know. It's a small world. Public radio is a small world. You know, if we don't know each other, then we usually know somebody who, who knows. And like we, we we're like one degree of separation. And usually that person's either Julie Shapiro, Ann Hepperman, or Lou Olkowski. The three people I know who seem to know just like everyone. Uh. <laughs> so for a number of reasons, I think partially because of the birth of your daughter, the truth is on hiatus until September. Yeah. So I was super surprised that um, like about an hour before you and I were scheduled to speak, 
there, you released a behind-the-scenes documentary about the production of That's Democracy, which is a yeah. piece that you did in 2012. Yeah. That, I mean, it's the first documentary I've made in almost three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed Lewis, and I interviewed Peter McNerney, who plays the main character, and I interviewed uh, the two filmmakers who adapted the story into a film. And then we also we record all of our story meetings. And so there's a lot of tape of this of the story meeting um, <laughs> that's, that became very contentious. Sure. And and, um, and then there's also I, I also still have the tape of the uh, recording session. So it's a pretty sort of comprehensive and uh, sound rich documentary. Was there anything that you wish that you put into the documentary that you had to cut for time? Yeah, there were a couple of things. The filmmakers I talked to for like an hour and 45 minutes in our interview, and I only have like maybe three minutes of them talking in the piece. So <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm probably going to put the full interview up on the website eventually. Cool. Um, I had a section about where we were debating whether or not to do a piece about guns in schools. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's pretty obvious what we were supposed to, what we needed to do. So it sort of it felt like a diversion. And then um, I cut out another section talking about how um, I was in Australia when we released the piece originally, and so I was editing it on an airplane to hmm. Australia in my hotel room, like late at night because I had jet lag. I like didn't sleep at all when we were there. Um, what what I, brought you to Australia? Uh, they invited us to give a workshop about how we make stories. So me and Ed Herbspin flew out there, and we had a group of maybe 20 or 25, 30 people, and uh, we all collaboratively tried to make a story together in a week. <laughs> That's fabulous. We should say uh, Ed Herbstman is the was is one of the founders of the Magnet Theater. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he's, he um, helped found the Magnet Theater. Yeah. And the Magnet provides a lot of the, the cast of the truth. Yeah, we work with a lot of performers there. We uh, we meet at the training center every week for a writers meeting, and so it's sort of our home base. Yeah, it's so nice to have like a a third place production facility that's not just someone's apartment or someone's yeah. house. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I do produce it in my apartment, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean that's that's where I am most of the time. But um, no, the, yeah, the magnet is basically where we meet. They let us use it for free, so I'm not complaining at all. That's fabulous. It's, it's nice to have a place to go. Yeah. So you, before you met up with Ed Herbstman and the people behind the Magnet, um, you you had been studying improv before that at Upright mm-hmm. Citizens Brigade. Yeah, I took about a year of classes there, like five classes. What led you to study improv? A friend of mine, actually Eric Malinsky, who has a podcast called Imaginary Worlds. He and I went to an improv show one time. He was taking improv at UCB, and we went to see uh, a group called The Swarm. Billy Merritt was in it, and Michael Delaney... Oh, and Chris Gethard was in it. Chris Gethard performed. Okay. Marvelous. Um, and, you know, this is like I didn't know any who any of these people were. They were all just people, you know. And I remember seeing Chris Gethard perform like, I want to I want to work with that guy because I thought he had this, just the most amazing voice. Anyway, I I just remember going to that show the first time and thinking, I, I love this. This is great. I love these people. This is really cool. This is like I thought I found like maybe I found my people or something, you know. I wanted to talk to you about the piece, Where Have You Been? Oh, yeah. So I don't want to spoil too much about it because I want people to go and listen to it. But it was one of the first pieces of audio fiction that I'd ever listened to that was essentially in the second person right. for most of it. it was all It's all addressed directly to you, the listener. You occupy 
um, the central role in mm -hmm. the story. I was wondering what inspired the the structure of that piece. I wanted to do a piece where the main character it, you never heard from them. It was all in the second person. I it, where I interviewed. I thought it would be interesting to interview a bunch of improvisers and have them talk to me, or or maybe even get another improviser there, you know, and have them talk to that person, but then never use that person, you know, only use the one performer. And the idea, the original idea I had was, um, I would just collect a lot of these, this tape, and then through editing, through like artful omission, <laughs> I would make it sound as though they were all talking to the same person. And it would basically create this biography of a person through editing improv. And I think the idea for that came, I produced a documentary about abortion in 2003 with a producer named Ari Birnbaum. Actually, she's named now Ari Golden. She got married. And that piece is called Shades of Grey? Shades of Grey, right. Okay, I haven't, I haven't heard it yet, but I wanted to name check it so that people could seek it out. Yeah, that was a pretty important piece for me at the time. I mean, I wrote all the music as an hour-long documentary, and it got a pretty nice response. Very sonically rich. And Ari collected all the tape for that. She um, she collected all the material, and one of the sort of recurring elements in the piece is she talked to her ex-boyfriend, and her, her ex-boyfriend is talking to her, but you, I didn't use any of her talking. I only used the ex-boyfriend talking, and so he's constantly talking to you, you know, and, it, and I really liked how it played. It, it's like he's talking to me, you know. It just changed the dynamic of what my perspective on the audio should be. And I thought it was an interesting thing to play around with. Uh, I, did, I just didn't hear it very much in in audio. No, it's very striking. Yeah. And so I wanted to see what we could do with that. And so since I was working with a lot of improvisers and also we were, um, I thought it would be a way of getting a story done where the burden was more on me, you know, so it would free up the other writers to work on work on other things. So you keep saying that you used to work with improvisers, even though you've been working with the same actors. Yeah, I still work with improvisers, yeah. But it sounds like you're moving more towards, if not scripted, something closer to devised pieces. Could you describe how the writing and the development process works for making a piece for the truth? Yeah. So nowadays it's much more traditional than it was in the beginning. Um, although, I mean, I like the idea of of just experimenting around and, and not having a set format like that. But I really like writing that is sophisticated and thought out. And um, I just think you can do a lot more with the medium that way. I was always finding myself, the more something was written and thought out ahead of time, the more I, I tended to like it. And, and this is like a very big complex subject. I think there's lots of different ways to approach it. But I think that having something written, like a script written out, actually frees the actors up a lot because you don't have to worry about what the story is going to be. You can use that energy to think about how the character is expressing him or herself. So it's kind of like the same constraints that were placed on you when you were using analog equipment. That's an interesting connection. to it. Like the freeing constraint of that. Yeah, I find that um, it doesn't keep the actors necessarily from giving me the same kinds of material I'm interested in getting. It just, it helps the, the improvisation to be more focused and useful. So you have like a really tight outline and then they improvise that outline into being? What is it? What does it look like? Lately, we just write a script. I mean, we've done it all kinds of different ways. I mean, we've done outlines. We've done very, very open-ended things. But lately... 
um, it'll be scripted out. And I always have the actors get to the point where they can do it from memory. I think that's very important. Um, I think that in audio drama, there's a real temptation to think, oh, because no one can see you, then it's okay to hold a script up. You, you, I, you can tell. You can always tell when someone's a little bit too on book. Yeah. It completely affects the sound of the performer. I just think it's easier to get to the place where I want to get if they're not reading it from a page, you know, if they're actually performing the text, you know, if they're if they're more engaged with their bodies and their voices. I also that brings up another thing that I really think is important is the pieces that I'm most satisfied with are the ones where the performers are moving around in a space mm-hmm. and using their whole bodies in the performance. I'm not of the school of thought that thinks that because you can't see anything, that means you have to do more with the voice. I don't like that at all. I just like to capture the way people actually talk in, in actual life. And then I can like use my editing skills to decide whether or not I'm the, the meaning is being conveyed or not. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I just like to work with performances that feel naturalistic in that way. And so I like, like, I like to have actors driving around and moving around and, and I like them to turn their heads away from the microphone, right. you know, and I like, I like to hear, hear them really use a space and use their bodies and not, I don't like them to think about the fact that it's just an audio thing. I want that to be beside the point. I want them to just behave and we'll capture that. We're ca- just capturing the audio, but that doesn't mean the other things aren't important. What was the piece you rented a car? Cause none of you had cars in New York. That you drove everyone around for. Oh, yeah. We've done that a bunch of times. But the the one you're probably thinking of is uh, Interruptible. In that case, I wanted a car. I knew I couldn't get a taxi, but I wanted a car that had vinyl or leather interior. <laughs> so that okay. it would sound like a taxi. You get kind of the awkward, sticky squeaking. Yeah, I wanted that. And like the like it sound bounces around differently. And I like there's something about the... I don't know, the slapback of a of vinyl seats that I thought like is really cool. What do you mean by slapback? Like the way that like the... like a little the slightly delay, you know? Like uh-huh. it's just like it has a um, I don't know, tingy, tingy sound to it. Interesting. So in two thousand twelve, the truth was a SoundCloud fellow. And part of that in, involved you getting funded to do these election horror stories. Right. I think I think there were four of them, right? There's, uh, there's five. That's democracy. Third party. Do you have a minute for equality? The death of Poe. Right. And what's it, number five? The modern Prometheus. Oh, the, okay. Yeah, it was also PRX funded that. So it's PRX and SoundCloud. You know, this is a, a pretty big election year. Do you have anything in the hopper for Halloween election year 2016? Uh, we do not. <laughs> okay. We thought about it, but um, the stories we're working on in the fall, we're starting back with a, a new story every two weeks, okay. and um, we're we're doing regular stories and we're alternating them with song and knots episodes. And so right now we are working on we've got the script for the next song and knots episode pretty much ready to record. I think we're we're gonna try to record it next week. And through this, we haven't actually talked about what song and knots is. Could you just pitch the listener on that real quick um it's uh it's a band a sort of a struggling indie band loses their drummer and they get a magical drum machine in the mail that uh when they play songs with the drum machine it transports them into their songs there it is yeah i've been ha- I've, I've been having a lot of fun listening to song of nuts cool and, 
and and flicking back 15 seconds to hear the little song snippets yeah yeah the songs are amazing i think jonathan Mann is a brilliant songwriter they're really catchy they're kinds of things like when i'm working on the piece like that's like all that's going through my head are those damn songs <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you're gonna have a every two week release schedule you're working on yeah more song and not stuff right now yeah and then uh probably it's looking like the first piece will probably be a story about uh a pair of college freshman roommates one of whom talks in his sleep okay another story we're working on is a story that lewis and um another writer carly minardo are working on together that is about a woman who has a strange disease okay that i won't go too much into but it's interesting another piece working on is about a woman who's on a subway and hears god through the subway announcements sure and um has to has to take an action that but she's too embarrassed to do it um but it's by a very very funny writer who's named sarah siskind who uh does a lot of sketch stuff at ucb cool so what what makes a story right for the truth as opposed to write for a different medium like have you ever come up with something and kicked it around with the writers and then say you know what this would be better as a short film or this would be better as a short story I think it has happened, but um, usually that's not why we why we choose not to do something. Usually we we choose not to do something because we can't figure out how to make it work. <laughs> okay, it's like if something is too visual, then we try to think of a of an aural analog for it. Okay, like a very simple example is like okay, if someone's a visual artist. We may we might say, well, what if we made him a musician? You know, sure. Um, okay. Usually, I mean, I'm working on, with the writers on the stories at the very beginning and all throughout the whole process. And so there's like the shaping and back and forth that goes on. And so usually the the medium, the constraints of the medium or the strengths of the medium are are sort of baked into the process. And we choose to work on the story because it, the idea itself suggests that it would work well in audio. And then we just play to those strengths. Like there's a story we did called Visible that I, I really think turned out well that the premise felt like a really natural fit for audio. It's a, a, a blind man and has an app, seeing eye app, that sort of talks him through, gives him directions. But um, it was really hard to write because that premise isn't really a story. It's just a, a device. And so um, the hard thing with that story was figuring out, well, if we want to center around center the story around this device, what does that actually mean in terms of like what the story should be and what... How do we narrow this down? Who is this guy? You know. Sure. What is he using that device yeah. to do? Where is he going? You know. I, I really like that piece. Cool. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Yeah. Um, that that same episode had a piece by Crystal Duhame. Yeah. And Mirabert Wintonic. Yeah. And those are those are producers that used to work on the late lamented Wiretap. That's right. Um, yeah. They have a new show called Love Me. Yeah. How did you hook up with those two? I think Julie Shapiro sort of tipped me off. And so I contacted them. I, I, I heard some of their pieces that they'd done for Wiretap. And um, actually, I was in at the Hearsay Festival. They were at the Hearsay Festival in Colfinan. Are there more people crammed into Colfinan than the whole population of Colfinan? Like, how many? Yeah, there were there were 200 radio producers there. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was, yeah. For all practical purposes, the radio people or audio people took over the town. And, uh, and so they were both there. And so I talked to them for a long time about working together on something. But... Before actually, before I even met them there, I think we had already planned to for me to air. I think it was the Call of Dating piece, and then the GPS piece. I thought, 
thematically it was it was a good pairing with the visible piece what are you what are you looking for what makes you happy um in in audio drama <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i don't need to pick a, pick that apart on a on a very like existential level although i'm happy to i like it when the performances are really good i want what i'm trying to make is work that i don't even realize i'm listening to like when i remember the story i want it to be like like the medium is irrelevant you know it's like it happened that happened and so i like to be immersed in the story and that doesn't mean like a really really like ornate sound design or like lots of sound stuff going on it means that um i'm i'm so into the story that i feel like i'm a part of it kind of like a radio verite kind of deal yeah yeah I, i really like that kind of stuff i like stuff that sounds very naturalistic and um i like oh i love there's a heart piece that actually it was their show is called audio smut when they released it called movies in your head um that i just thought was amazing i love that piece i think it's i think it's better than anything we've done on the truth personally the the sort of that emotional immediacy of that piece is just so beautiful is that when the two women meet on a train yeah okay i've heard that piece it's so intimate and the music and sound design is really sophisticated and cool on arty and it felt like something I, I that i love that i wouldn't have probably made on my own like i, I like things that uh surprise me and use the medium in different ways tell me stories that i i don't expect to hear that don't feel derivative i think that audio drama should be as good as anything on television or in film i agree i don't i don't like believe in making apologies for it <laughs> you know it should be good Mm-hmm. I feel like I really want audio drama to be like a mainstream kind of, or I don't mainstream is the wrong word. It's like, I want it to be culturally accepted as being like a normal thing that people do. And I think that that's only going to happen if lots and lots of people are doing it. Yeah. And there's a like a wide varied culture of it. Is it stylistic diversity that you're seeking to? I guess I, to me, I don't just on an intuitive level, it feels wrong to say that because you like audio drama you're gonna like this other audio drama right that's like saying oh you like you like the godfather i bet you're gonna love saw exactly like i make novels you make novels let's form a network you know well no it doesn't work that's not how people listen that's not people how people read novels you know my strategy has always been to uh build on an audience by reaching outside by reaching for people who might like what I'm doing who aren't listening to audio drama already. And I think that's that's where those people are living now. I think the people who are eventually are going to like it, if if it's going to become a big thing, are not listening to it at all. But they do listen to things. There's a huge audience for podcasting. And this is changing. I mean, sure. like, I, I mean, the world I'm describing maybe is a little bit like three or four years ago. Nowadays, there's a lot of people listening to audio drama. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks for playing the piece, too. It's really nice. Well, folks, if you think what you heard was really nice, head on over to thetruthpodcast.com, subscribe with your favorite podcast catch-in method, and give a lovely review. That's how we make money, probably. Now, I must hit you with another truth. This episode of Radio Drama Revival is over. Let me read some credits at you. Our theme music was assembled in a secret NSA laboratory by Dr. DJ Stranger Danger. It broke loose one muggy evening and has never been heard again. Till now. 
If you like what you hear, check him out on SoundCloud. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux, who are quite handy with the technology, for reasons they are unable to explain. It's second nature to them, almost uncanny-like. Our producer this week is Eli McElveen, subbing in for Matthew Boudreaux as he and Monique cart their youngin' off to college. You can find Eli's audio drama work at albasalix, that's A-L-B-A-S-A-L-I-X dot com, or find him at his personal website at forgeryleague.com. Thanks, Eli. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouge, who lives in an out-of-the-way house, very much like the one in today's piece. Sometimes strangers come by on rainy nights. Sometimes they stay for a very long time. A very, very long time. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. You've been listening to Radio Drama Revival, and until next time, I'm telling you stories. Trust me. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.